And we are blamed to be anti-unions in some arguments. Radical left, leftist bubble. These were the adjectives and some nouns that were given to us. It's not that we are against the trade unions, but one thing has to be understood perfectly. The transients in these workplaces, the temporary contracts, the frequent turnover, the dependencies such as residence, visa, etc., do not make it possible for long-term unionizing. Our conditions are precarious, but so are these workplaces themselves. They run on investors' money and their life is dependent on if their PR can create a need for them in society or not. And in the if not scenario, poof, they're gone. When a litigant addresses a group of supporters outside the court where her case is being considered by judges, it is a sign that the significance of the issue goes beyond her individual circumstances. This was undoubtedly the case with Duigu Kaya, whose voice you just heard. On April 25th earlier this year, her appeal against a decision of Berlin's Labour Court was to be heard by the Appellate Labour Court or the Landesarbeitsgericht for Berlin and Brandenburg. It was a cold morning, grey like the court building in Berlin's Magdeburger Platz. Outside it, Duigu was addressing a group of over 30 people. They included some from the media, some representatives of German unions such as the manufacturing union IG Metall, and several current and former platform delivery workers. The hearing would take place in courtroom number 334. Duigu was not the only appellant. There were two others. One was Fernando and the other was Ronnie, whose story you heard in the previous episode of the Delivery Charge podcast. The three had been colleagues at Gorillas when they were fired less than a week after the strikes at the company in Berlin during the first week of October 2021. They had almost immediately challenged their firings in Berlin's Labour Court. That was the court of first instance and now, almost 19 months later, their legal challenge had arrived before an appellate court. But this was not simply a matter of three workers who felt that they had been fired unjustly. As we learned in the last episode of this podcast, the strikes at Gorillas were termed variously as wild strikes or wildcat strikes because they were conducted outside the framework of organizing that is favored in Germany's system of industrial relations. Simply put, the strikes at Gorillas in early October of 2021 did not have the blessings of one of Germany's mainstream unions. Without being blessed by such a union, any coordinated withdrawal of work would not be legal and so the workers who participated in those wild strikes were not protected against being fired or some other type of retaliation by the company. These were some of the limits placed by German law on a worker's right to strike. 
By asking why they were fired, therefore, this litigation provoked an examination of those very limits. This case could thus be placed in the category of strategic litigation, which is sometimes also called impact litigation. The intention with such litigation is not to just win the immediate matter at hand, but to use the court system to create broader changes in society. Duigu wanted her individual case challenging her termination from guerrillas to have an impact on the freedom of German workers to strike. So basically this became the purpose of my life. And this wasn't my plan. My plan was to come here, do my masters and maybe do my PhD here, become an academic or become a teacher because I had like two types of plans regarding Germany. One of them was becoming a teacher and the other one was uh, following an academic uh, lifestyle because it is a lifestyle. It's quite challenging. Like you have to put your head around it. You, it's, Your academic studies have to be your only focus. And when you are dealing with strike rights in Germany, it also steals a little from your academic purposes and other purposes because I have to read and I have to get informed on what I'm doing. And I have to read things in German. I have to talk to people who speak German. My German is not that great. Um, the things I read, I can understand it to some extent, but there are lots of times where I don't understand anything and I have to go through translations over translations. And even understanding it in English does not mean anything because I have to put it in a context and there's always a way to interpret things when it comes to law. You're listening to Duigu Kaya on the Delivery Charge podcast. My name is Aju John, and this is episode 4, Delivery Workers versus the Ghost of Hans Karl Nippedai. In October of 2021, when Duigu organized the wild strike at Gorillas, she had been on the job for less than six months. If you've listened to the first episode of this podcast, you know that these strikes followed more than eight months of feverish worker activism at the app-based grocery delivery company that had started operations in Berlin in May 2020. I will now summarize some of the key events. It was on February 10th of 2021 that the Gorillas Workers Collective appeared on Twitter not long after the company's delivery workers had struck work in several locations of the city, protesting that the gear they had did not sufficiently protect them against the snowstorms that had hit the city. In the months that followed, as pandemic containment measures were imposed in Berlin, Gorillas raised 290 million US dollars in a venture capital investment round at which it was valued at over 1 billion US dollars. Around the same time, the members of the Gorillas Workers Collective took some procedural steps that were necessary to establish a works council at the company. In June, for example, 
several workers came together at a general assembly or betriebsversammlung to elect from among themselves a wahlvorstand or an electoral council to conduct the elections to the betriebsrat in july supported by the gorillas workers collective some workers organized a wild strike in response to a colleague being fired Despite legal challenges to the legitimacy of the Wahlvorstand that was elected, the elections to the Works Council were scheduled to take place in November. On October 1st, workers at a number of warehouses voted to go on strike. Riders picketed and blockaded warehouse entrances. And on top of everything that had already happened, they came up with this great scheduling idea that was based on optimization. Uh we would have like regular shifts, morning shift, afternoon shift, night shift, let's say. and late night shift um and it would mean if i'm on morning shift i know when i'm going to start working the whole week so i can organize my work schedule uh that is outside work which like people go to schools people go to language schools people have universities so they have a life outside of it uh even without the obligations i mean they have a we, we have a private part of our lives as well that does not belong to work life and what came later was in complete breach of this they started giving us shifts that were scattered out throughout the day one day i would say uh, i would uh, start at 7 in the morning the next day i would start at 3 pm the next day i would start at 10 and it was basically okay you are needed the most between these hours and these hours so that like there was no consideration of our life outside work there was no consideration of our schools and universities nothing as if we were some sort of a some sort of an object that that could have been used and implemented like directly so how are you going to strike for this for example with uh in the conventional ways after she was fired duigu told wise.com open quote over the past few months gorillas has chronically understaffed warehouses and has consistently pushed us to our limits by trying to do more and more with less and less riders We went on strike to show that we are not objects to be toyed with that we are just robots close quote Along with Fernando and Ronnie Duigo questioned before Berlin's labor court the grounds on which they were fired In doing so they were challenging the limits in Germany on the right to strike If workers wanted to go on strike the law required them to do so only after they had organized themselves in very particular ways so the conditions create the way to organize itself it's not that we were making a research and finding the best way to strike in this kind of work because it wasn't like a social science project the realities of the workplace the realities of this sort of this line of work created this sort of organizing you're listening to duigu kaya on the delivery charge podcast the delivery charge podcast is supported by the ms marian artagor international center of advanced studies Metamorphoses of the Political or ICASMP which is an Indo-German research collaboration of six Indian and German institutions funded by the German Federal Ministry of Education and Research my name is Aju John this podcast is available on all podcast platforms including Spotify Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts 
You can visit any of these platforms and search for delivery charge. If you subscribe to the feed, then you will get to know when a new episode is released. Through her challenge to the limits on the freedom to strike, Duigu was also asking us to consider whether those limits were appropriate at a workplace such as Gorilla's. In fact, the world of work had changed dramatically since those limits had become part of industrial relations in Germany. One scholar who has considered work in the platform economy is Sara Kasim. Sara is a lecturer and research associate in the field of political economy at the Institute of Political Science at the University of Tübingen and the author of Work and Alienation in the Platform Economy, published in 2023 by the Bristol University Press. I think the starting point for any discussion on the platform economy or platforms is to distinguish between the different kinds. Now, there's a lot of different scholars who have found different ways to classify platforms. The one that I adopt and kind of adapt is number one, the nature of the platform itself. Are we talking about a worker that is location-based, meaning really the physical location of where they are is necessary for their labor? So here you have, in my opinion, the Amazon warehouses, so the e-commerce platform of Amazon. You have to be in the warehouse to pack the item for the customer. And then at the same time, you have someone like an Uber driver. The Uber driver has to be in a specific location in their car in order to drive someone from point A to point B. So this is one thing, the nature of the platform. Then on the other hand, um, we have not just this physical location, but we have web-based workers, right? We see this especially in the global south where someone in the global north, it could be a corporation, it could be a university, it could be an individual that posts a, a task on something like Amazon Mechanical Turk. So this is actually my second case study that I look at. And uh, the task can be, please answer the survey or please watch this video and tell me how you felt after watching this video. And the worker can be located anywhere in the world. So their labor itself is mediated through the internet of course, these workers are not abstract to their material conditions. So if I'm facing specific political economic conditions in my country, um, then obviously this plays into how I depend on the wage. Do I have certain rights? Can I unionize or not? And so forth. So we have the nature of the platform being location and remote based. But the other thing that I think is very important to talk about, and I'm by far not uh, the only one doing so, is the nature of the work. So here, are we talking about a traditional time wage? Am I paid by the hour regardless of my performance? Or am I paid by gig? So an Amazon warehouse worker is number one, right? They have their hourly wage. They know I will earn, let's say now 12 euros, 13 euros the hour, regardless of my output, even if I have that pressure. Whereas an Uber driver will only get paid based on how many rides uh, they're driving at the end of the day, right? So the precarity there is a different dimension. 
Gorillas was among a set of companies around the world that promised to deliver groceries quickly. This sector of business, part of online retail, came to be known by names such as quick commerce or just Q-commerce. In order to deliver groceries quickly, they opened a network of warehouses in the cities where its services were available. At these warehouses, orders are received and processed by employees known as pickers. As orders come in, they pick up the products from shelves and prepare them for delivery. From the warehouse, another worker known as a rider delivers these bags to the user, most often on bicycles. During the months of the pandemic, gorillas made promises to deliver groceries in under 10 minutes of receiving the order. Another scholar who has studied such workplaces is Dr. Tatiana Lopez. Tatiana is a guest researcher in the working group Globalization, Work, Production at the Weizsäbe or the Social Science Centre Berlin. She is also a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of Economic Geography at the University of Würzburg. Last year, along with Martina Fuchs, Peter Dannenberg, Katrin Wiedemann and Tim Riedler, she published Location-Specific Labour Control Strategies in Online Retail, an article in the journal Advances in Economic Geography. One of the key concepts that the article relied on for understanding labour control strategies in online retail firms was that of digital tailorism. So tailorism emerged in industrial production um, at the beginning of the 20th um, century. And um, it was basically the change uh, from individualized and more customized production to mass production. Um, so um, Henry Ford is always the name that is associated with it. Um, and what he did is he revolutionized automotive production um, by introducing the assembly line system. So before, um, basically, one worker would probably produce a whole car and would produce all the parts. And then all the parts were basically individually put together and they fit together. Um, but that was not super effective. So um, he revolutionized this production system by breaking the um, production process down in very small parts and producing all the inputs um, basically separately. Um, which led to um, a mode of work organization in which each worker only carries out um, very uh, small specific steps, such as um, uh, putting one screw into the carrossery or um, producing um, maybe just the window, for example. And then everything is put together. And um, by doing that, um, Ford also achieved um, to upscale production to a larger scale because now um, each screw would fit in each carrossery and um, yeah and the the kind of spatial layout that was connected to is uh, to it is um, we all know it so um, there was, was the emergence of these huge factories um, from basically what was what used to be smaller workshops with a few workers who all had um, like a very diversified skill set now turned into these huge factory complexes where each worker has a very specialized um, profile of doing one specific step in the production process and which also uh, went along with uh, de-skilling for many workers because now instead of being able to produce many different things that go into card they were just doing basically one specific step such as i don't know putting something on the assembly belt or putting a specific screw in and um, so while this production model has been um, yeah, very prevalent in the industrial sector, 
um, especially in like in mass production now for uh, probably almost a century, or um, especially after the Second World War, it um, yeah it became like the prevalent mode of production in many sectors. Um, where um, so in the service sectors for a long time we had not necessarily seen this kind of work organization because the service sectors, but also maybe um, the including the logistics sector. Um, but also the retail sector, um, they, um, yeah, their work organization um, had for a longer time still been not as streamlined as you know. It also um, requires, for example, in retail, um, if we look at, for example, fashion retail for a long time, like this kind of work had also to do with, you know, talking to customers, advising customers, and, and, and also a mode of work organization where um, employees did a lot of different tasks in the store, for example, or in the warehouses, um, employees would go around and um, they would they would manage um, the whole process from maybe um, yeah retrieving an order, then thinking what is the best way to pick these things in the way um, in the in the warehouse because they knew the spatial layout of the warehouse, so they were more organizing their task um, autonomously, and maybe also their workday. Um, but what we have seen over the past probably 20 years is um, the increasing transfer of these kind of modes of work organization that we have seen more in the industrial sectors, also to the service sectors um, with um, new digital technologies that facilitate this kind of new mode of work organization. And these um, new digital technologies are, for example, tracking devices, um, such as handheld scanners um, that work usually with um, RFID technologies, so very potent um, scanning technique um, technology that can um, scan little chips um, from a distance of up to um, various meters and also scan various chips at once and which can also be tracked. Um, so these systems, they feed data into a central cloud and um, then this data can be processed, it can be um, accessed by, for example, supervisors, by managers, um, and um, it can be also used to, um, op um, to optimize uh, processes. So what we have seen is that, uh, for example, in retail or in logistics now, um, labor processes are more and more standardized. Um, so um, also the different tasks that are there are broken down into very small steps, such as, you know, um, for example, imagine an Amazon warehouse when an order comes in. So um, now you need to pick the right thing. Um, and while um, so while um, in other warehouses, probably it used to be like that, that um, you get a whole list with a lot of orders and then you go and pick them autonomously as a worker. Now every worker has a little handheld device, a scanner or a little handheld computer and um, and they don't even know um, what they're going to do in like 20 minutes. They just know now um, this device sends me to shelf 6, um, box 8 and I have to pick this thing, put it into my container and then I press OK and then I get um, basically the information of what to pick next and where. And um, um, so the whole organization of the work process is basically taken over by um, digital digital technology, by softwares, um, so that um, also this kind of skill and this kind of, um, yeah, maybe 
intellectual work of you know planning your own work process <clears throat> and um and um yeah optimizing it finding out what works best for you is kind of basically erased and instead um yeah workers are just carrying out um small steps that are dictated by a digital device Taylorism, as Tatiana explained for us now, is a form of work organization that emerged from industrial production but has now left a deep imprint on how work is organized in the service sector, an influence that is clearly visible in firms such as Gorillas. What impact do these work processes have on the workers? For this, we return to Sara Kasim. So I think alienation is actually a word that I'm seeing more and more being used in the media. You can see a newspaper article where it's about is technology taking over and then oftentimes people will say I feel alienated from my job, I don't identify with it. And I've been quite fascinated by this concept, but I wanted to study it more systematically. What are the different forms of alienation? What does it mean more specifically? You know, theory isn't just for theory's sake, but we should be able to to understand a little bit more of the picture with theory and analyze it a bit more. So what I did for this specific work is I went back to the work of uh Karl Marx of his economic and philosophical philosophic manuscripts of 1844 and in these manuscripts yes you know the first thing is it is a script that's from 200 almost 200 years ago. So for sure we can critique it for it was written in a specific time but i think we can still learn from it and then adapt it to understand uh, our world today so within these manuscripts marx identifies four different forms of alienation which i found very useful to study then in the platform economy the first one is the alienation to my labor activity what does this mean it means my relationship to the work i do You know, we can take any example of the economy and ask ourselves, okay, do I understand my work as really do I identify with it? Do I really understand what I produce as it is my product? Is this even possible under capitalism? A lot of people and I included would argue alienation is just part of capitalism because you have to sell what you make to survive and make a living, right? So we don't live in that kind of society unfortunately where where I can in the same way say this is my product um or I identify necessarily always with my labor there's a lot of different dimensions there so there's the alienation from my labor activity there's my so the act of working then there's to my labor product so the result of my work then there is one to my species being which relates to how do I, how do i understand my world essentially you know this understanding under capitalism where i always say uh, to my students when you meet someone new you tend to ask them what do you do right we ask what is your job and we then realize that our understanding of the world very much is so tied to labor nowadays that we tend to to say hi my name is you know hi my name is sara and i'm a researcher for example instead of finding other dimensions of my identity so in a way to understand how does the specific work i do influence my life beyond work so also the sphere of the home and then the fourth uh alienation or relation to alienation is to the fellow human beings so is it that i always understand the person in front of me as this is also a worker is this also someone who's you know competitive do i have a very individualistic understanding of society so what i wanted to to do is to take these four elements and i must say that i approach the four elements in a different order than marx himself i think uh, i want to start with the general because in the end it starts with what am i doing as work and then try to apply this to amazon warehouses so right now it sounds very abstract so i want to apply this now so that we can make it more concrete 
Um, so I, as a researcher on Amazon warehouses, I've uh, I've done my fieldwork here in Germany, meaning uh, I've gone to a warehouse, you know, Amazon gives these public tours. Now they're also offered virtually where anyone can go in and take a look at what does it look like. Um, I've also spoken and interviewed workers in Germany. I've attended both national and transnational union meetings. So there's a lot of, let's say, uh, participant observations involved and a lot of interviews that are involved. So essentially, when we talk about the alienation of the labor activity for Amazon warehouse workers or in general, I think the concept of the division of labor is very important. So when we take when we dive into the warehouse, what does the process actually look like? You mentioned yourself, the labor process. So it's important to understand how is the labor process organized and how is it managed? And in the question of how is it managed, algorithms play in. They, they, they factor in for the control and uh, for the surveillance of the workers. So within an Amazon warehouse, um, we have the inbound and the outbound. In the inbound, it means basically the product is entering the warehouse. It's coming from outside. It's shipped to the warehouse. So in the inbound, you have workers that stow this item. Basically, you scan the product, put it on the system, and then the next worker is the stower, takes this item, puts it in on a shelf. It's as simple as that. Um, now the other side of it is the outbound. So let's imagine now we have a customer, the customer made this order for this book, for example, someone called a picker has to go between the shelves, has this information on their hand scanner, gets the book for you, then put, gives it kind of in a basket to the next person who then packs your item. So really you can kind of imagine sort of like a factory work except you're not producing, you're circulating items, right? You're taking them from one place to the other to bring them to the customer. Except here, we're not talking about factory work of the 19th century anymore, the 20th century, really talking about it being extremely high tech. The deployment of technology can very much differ on based on the warehouse. Not all the warehouses have the same amount of technology um, that's implemented, but there's a baseline that we can say is always there. And uh, so it's kind of like this factory work brought into the 21st century. And Amazon, you know, it also likes to present itself as a tech company, you know, with Amazon Web Services and so forth. So it's really at the forefront of technological development. And when workers are hired in this division of labor, you're basically hired to do any one of these jobs. So it's a very simple training. You don't need any prior qualifications or knowledge or education necessarily, you just have to be you know, 18 or older and you can start working here. The point is, whenever I was talking to workers, of course not everyone is like this. Some people are very happy with their work, but a lot of them, the sentiment they have is, I feel like I'm a robot. You know, I have this number that I have to fulfill. So in Amazon warehouse called units per hour rate. And here, you know, it's, it's in, you have this performance pressure you see across the platform economy, but also outside of the economy. If, you know, your manager comes to you in an office and wants to know how much did you kind of, what's your output per month? It's the same thing, but under a different name. So in the Amazon warehouses, you have this units per hour rate, and this is, you're informed of it every day. Um, for example, you have to pick what between, I don't know, let's say 120 items. You have to pick 120 items within the hour. So this essentially means you have to pick two items per minute, right? So if you're doing this same kind of work, uh, you know, 
two items per minute and then this times 60 because it's per hour and then this times eight because you're working eight hours a day, you really feel like you're, you're, you are the machine. You're what, keep, what keeps Amazon running. And here you see how the technology, here being the units per hour rate, factors in to how you feel alienated that you don't identify here. It could be, you could switch me out with any other worker and the process would continue. So this here is essential. Now, the fact that this is a location-based now is crucial because not only are you kind of surveilled through the uh, system once you log in, you know, if you're on, at a computer, you log in with your ID. If you're using a hand scanner, you log in on it too. So not only are you on the system that can then measure essentially how long you need for every task, but also because you're location-based, um, there's been a lot of research also by, uh, by Delfanti and Catero about this, how the social eye plays a crucial role. So there's been a lot of scandalous stories about, you know, managers telling you you're taking too many bathroom breaks, for example. And this is because the manager not only sees your log and this time off task, this is what it's called, but also because they can see, oh, you're socializing again. Oh, you're going to the bathroom again. So you have this mix between the social eye and the technological interface. And with the technological interface, this is where algorithmic management comes in. There was also a scandal about how basically if you drop below a certain number, you can get uh, fired without a manager consulting these numbers, taking a look at these numbers. Amazon says this can be overridden and that this is not final. But we also know this from other platforms, right? If you're an Uber driver, if you're an Uber driver and your stars drop below a certain number, you're out. You get as if you're fired immediately. So in the Amazon warehouses, you have this additional dimension of the social. It's not just the tech. So this is in terms of the labor activity. In terms of the labor product, I think, um, you know, if you are on a clock and if you have to pick two items per, per minute, right now I said two items per minute, but by the way, the number is much higher depending on where you are in the world. Polish workers said our number is 240. So that's they have to work twice as fast as a German worker. In the US, there were stories where workers said, we our number is 400. You have to sit there and think, what does 400 mean per hour times how many hours you're working a day and every single day? And the idea is, if you're not, if you don't make rate, this is what it's called in the Amazon warehouses, you're regarded as an underperformer. In order to keep their promise of delivering groceries quickly, quick commerce companies such as Gorillas had to operate warehouses in the inner metropolitan regions of cities. A user's order for a dozen eggs, three apples, a banana, and a roll of toilet paper cannot be driven in from outside the city. A warehouse needs to be located a short distance away from the user. This is not the case with the larger online retailers like Amazon that rely on massive warehouses in the outer regions of cities. Digital tailorism applies differently in these contexts. We wanted to explore different modes of labor control in um, warehouses, in online retail and warehouse work. Um, and we have heard a lot about digital tailorism being prevalent in these large warehouses such as Amazon. There has been a lot of work done on Amazon um, and digital tailorism and describing these mechanisms that I just um, pointed out, which, which I'm, I mentioned to forgot, they also go along with an enhanced control of workers, every movement, every step. Every um, every task is immediately monitored, um, and these trackers also allow, for example, supervisors or managers to track how long does each worker take for each specific step. Do they take breaks? Do they go to the toilet? 
Um, so, um, so that is also this notion of digital control that is very much linked to digital Taylorism. And um, what we wanted to find out was um, how do these kind of control mechanisms and these control strategies, how do they differ in different types of warehouses that you find in different types of geographical areas? Um, so we looked at warehouses in outer metropolitan areas. So what we have seen is that around the big metropolises, um, such as around Berlin, for example, um, but also in other areas, usually in more um, outskirt areas, not in the urban centers, but more in the in the kind of um, outer metropolitan belts that are around these metropolises. They have there has been a, a yeah a lot of growth emergence of big warehouses for online retailers. Um, actually, you can't even call them warehouses as much as logistic centers because their function is much more complex than just um, stocking. Um, than just um, stocking goods, but so especially with the um, emergence and um, steep growth of online retail, um, online retailers such as Amazon or um, in Germany Zalando is a big one for fashion, but also others, they have um, established large warehouses um, in these outer metropolitan belts. And um, at the same time, we have seen different types of online retail um, emerging in the inner cities, um, in the more urban centers. Um, first and foremost, obviously, the platform economy with um, their delivery services. Um, as you all know, now you can buy groceries um, via an app in almost every bigger German city. And um, these groceries are then delivered within 10 minutes or maybe sometimes 20 to your doorstep uh, from um, warehouses. And um, these warehouses, they are different from Amazon's warehouses, from Zalando warehouses, since um, since um, delivery time is essential here, your groceries within 10 minutes. So <clears throat> um, especially in the quick commerce sector, these apps, these um, delivery apps, they have set up networks of warehouses um, in the city. Um, often um, these warehouses are established in, for example, what used to be other commercial spaces um, of other, um, yeah, just other stores. Um, and they are often located in, um, yeah, more type of living areas um, or in <clears throat> like um, sub, um, sub, like in um, neighborhood city centers, basically in neighborhood centers in, um, what do you call this? Not the central city center, but like the, um, in yeah local city center in local centers of specific neighborhoods um and um so we wanted to compare how does how do these control strategies how's the work organized in these big warehouses by big online retailers in the outer metropolitan area but also in these quick commerce warehouses in the urban centers um and uh, what we found is that there are um that there are differences which are also brought about by the um, specific spatial layout that these different warehouses have. When looking at the differences between modes of labor control and work organization in um, outer metropolitan large warehouses with often several thousand workers and these smaller warehouses um, that are in the inner city centers um, that belong to quick commerce um, retailers or these app-based delivery retailers, <clears throat> but also sometimes to more specialized 
um, more like mid-size retailers, often family-owned, that specialize in specific types of goods, um, of merchandise, such as, for example, um, band merchandise or um, specific like specialty food or wines, uh, specific wines. Um, so, um, but the size um, in any case varies. And what we found is that um, this digital tailorism, this digital control is much more prevalent actually in these larger warehouses um, in the outer metropolitan areas. Um, uh, while it is not the main um, mode of work organization and control in the inner metropolitan areas, which is um, in some way a bit um, uh, contradicts this narrative, especially with quick commerce retail, that um, this is like the new digital economy, right? The platform economy, everything is digitalized. This is not really what we found, especially when we look at the work in the warehouses. So while in Amazon, um, this digital control is very prevalent um, with workers having handheld scanners and um, being dictated each and every work step, um, being tightly controlled with supervisors tracking their movements, um, workers being cited to supervisors for taking too long on their toilet break, which supervisors are able to see um, with um, due to these tracking devices. Um, this is not so much what we found in the inner metropolitan areas, where warehouses are usually much smaller. Probably there's around 20 workers working in the warehouse, and um, and um, so their so their movements are not necessarily tracked because um, also the the supervisors or the warehouse managers they are able to basically oversee the the whole warehouse, the spatial layout of the warehouses. So um, these kind of digital control where workers each movement is tracked, um, plays more of a role for the couriers, but not so much in the warehouses. Um, however, <clears throat> what we found is that in both inner and outer metropolitan warehouses, um, digital control is not um, the only form of control. It is always combined with other forms of control, which are more of a social nature. When we talk about social means of control, we um, what we mean is how are the the social relations and the labor relations structured um, by um, by warehouse managers um, in a way that kind of ensures that workers um, continue to do their job and um, don't organize. Um, so here, I think we see two prominent features of social control. One um, would be a very deliberate um, yeah, deliberate recruitment strategy of recruiting migrant workers. This is on the one hand a way of ensuring that there is labor supply because the jobs are um, relatively precarious. They are low paid, relatively low paid. They are hard work. So to um, ensure labor supply, um, large retailers, but also quick commerce retailers tap into migrant worker pools um, that often have um, little other option in the labor market currently because they are waiting for their papers. Um, they are waiting to um, for their qualifications to 
be um, recognized, for example. Um, and um, so there's a higher dependence of these workers on the platform work. On the one hand, often the, the job is also tied to their visa. So it kind of is also a way not only to ensure labor supply, but also to, to kind of recruit workers that are less likely to organize and to create problems. Um, and on the other hand, um, this is more pronounced in the inner metropolitan areas where um, the warehouses and the companies, yeah, the warehouses are smaller. So um, the social relations are also a bit more um, direct um, between, for example, managers and workers. And what we see here is also a form of social control where there is a um, strong discourse of individualizing labor relations between um, managers and the individual workers, where managers tell workers, you know, you don't need to go to a union, um, don't talk to the workers' collective. If you have a problem, just come to me, we can resolve it, we are a family. Um, and the discourse of, um, you know, um, we stick together, we, um, we work for the same goal, um, so to also kind of discourage uh, collective organizing. The, the level of um, digital control is actually not as pronounced in the warehouses as it is for the couriers. Um, for the couriers, since they are out on the street, they are dispersed in the city, um, the um, platforms or these apps the companies use make more use of digital devices to control um, these workers' movements. Um, they are tracked from uh, the moment they leave the warehouse um, until they get back to the warehouse to pick up the next order. Also, they get um, their instructions, um, so basically the address to which to deliver um, via their smartphones, via an app, whereas in the, in the warehouses, um, this aspect of controlling workers' movements, tracking their movements, is not um, so much, um, is, um, yeah, it's just not um, a main strategy. It's not, um, it's also not necessary because the warehouses are not that big and um, warehouse managers can probably see workers' movements. Um, what I did not mention before is that um, I think um, a form of social control plays a bigger role here, which is... Um, a bit different, which is different from the large warehouses of Amazon and Zalando, but um, which is probably the same for couriers and um, warehouse workers in quick commerce, uh, which is a form of social control where there's a lot of a discourse of um, we are um, we are family, we all working, you know, for the same goal. And um, and we have very flat hierarchies. And if you have a problem, you can always come and um, talk to me. For example, the warehouse manager, if you as a warehouse worker, you have any kind of problem, you know, just come and talk to me and we resolve it individually. Um, and um, that is and therefore we don't need more formalized um, collective um, structures of dialogue of representation such as works councils. Um, so, um, so this is also a form of social control that is uh, very, um, that is more pronounced in the warehouses, for example. But, um, but this probably also applies to the couriers, um, even though they have less contact with, um, with the warehouse managers. That was Dr. Tatiana Lopez on the different forms of labor control in the different types of platform retail firms. This is the Delivery Charge podcast where I, Aju John, explore how platform delivery workers are organizing for fairer conditions of work in India, where I am from, and in Germany, where I live. 
Using interviews with delivery worker activists and trade union activists in India and in Germany, and the stories of their activism during the COVID years of 2020, 2021, and 2022, the Delivery Charge podcast explores themes such as the role of the Works Council under Germany's labor law, resistance to algorithmic management, the impact of the pandemic on delivery work, and forms of control in location-based platform work. This is episode 4, which looks at how law constrained the struggles of Gorilla's workers in 2021, and how the workers are now using the legal process to reveal those very constraints and to question their legitimacy and their appropriateness for platform delivery work. Back now to Sarah Kasim, who explains how work processes in online retail affects workers. These warehouses, I would say you could kind of imagine them as very large IKEAs. So they're very big, and depending on what kind of work you're doing, you can be moving around more than others. So if I'm a packer, I'm at my station all day long, and I'm just packing and putting it on this conveyor belt. But if I'm a picker, I could be assigned specific kind of, they say it's optimized. Here the algorithms play a role, which items are shown to me on the hand scanner to pick. Um, So I'm moving around a bit more. The point is, though, when it comes to the breaks, Workers have specific breaks. There was a recent article actually in the US where workers don't even have enough time to go to the break room. So when when there's a break, they just sit down on the floor where they are. And this is what happens is that even the time you have off of work during your work time is very much restricted because you could take seven minutes to walk to your break room. And if your break is just half an hour, you're not left with much. So there's also that dimension at work, but there's of course the dimension outside of work. Um, you know, these are shifts in Germany, the shifts uh, change every few weeks. So you could have the night shift, then you have the morning shift. So it becomes more difficult for you to coordinate um, your social activities, your time with your family, and uh, it leaves you exhausted. So it can also mean that workers, you know, in their free time, they're going to say, I don't have the energy to organize right now. I just want to rest. And that's absolutely legitimate. Um, So here we can say that also depending on, you know, the dimensions of your reproductive labor. So if I have to go home and take care of my children or drive my children somewhere or I have to take care of someone else, all of this factors into what your life is outside of work. And here I want to highlight these dimensions are not unique to Amazon, but these are really patterns you're going to see across the capitalist economy today. The last dimension that's especially interesting then when we want to move on from just talking about the individual worker, but more the organization of workers collectively, is the alienation to fellow humans. So how do I perceive the person in front of me? On the one hand, Amazon emphasizes that it's an equal opportunity employer, which means they don't discriminate. You can be anyone. Um, They don't discriminate on the basis of race, sex, whatever. Um, They're happy to hire you. Essentially, this is true because they will hire whoever is willing to do this kind of manual work. Um, and Amazon tries to, and this is where a look, being a location-based platform and getting a traditional wage, I think is crucial because they actually try to build up this sort of company culture. You know, if you're an Uber driver and you're a gig worker, you're not, in many cases, you're not even regarded as an official worker of Uber. So Uber doesn't need to invest in making you feel like you're part of the company because essentially you are not, right? You are outsourced in a way. Um, In the case of Amazon warehouse workers, of course, workers are hired on different contracts. You have in a lot of places in the world that the workers are subcontracted. But if they are hired directly, Amazon does create a culture. They call them Amazonians. They have this slogan called um, printed on the walls of warehouses that says, work hard, have fun, make 
history. So this is what workers are walking into daily, you know, being part of Amazon's history. But essentially, a lot of workers will say, you, on the one hand, yes, we identify with the corporation. We're happy to work for an international company. We hear this a lot. But on the other hand, they say that, uh, you know what, at the end of the day, what are we judged on? We're judged on our individual performance, which goes back to this units per hour rate. So actually, rather than feeling as part of a team, it's very individualistic. So you can see here across these different elements of alienation, how it kind of helps us understand what are the working conditions in the warehouses and how it's not just me and my work anymore. It's me and my work and what I, what I, how I identify kind of my, my life and how I identify with my fellow workers. So this is, let's say, part of the image now. So part of the image or part of our picture of understanding Amazon warehouse workers, I would say, is by understanding their alienation, which we could apply across the world for whatever jobs. But at the same time, I'm saying it's part of the analysis, because if we stopped here, it sounds like workers have no agency. You're alienated and that's it, right? You're supposed to work like a robot and that's it. But in reality, we see there's a lot of labor organization that's happening. And this is the point we're going to return to then. We have all now learned a bit more from Sarah and Tatiana about work processes and the methods of labor control in different types of location-based platform work, such as online retail. We now return to the subject of this podcast, the organizing practices of delivery workers. What impact do these work processes and methods of labor control have on the avenues for workers to organize themselves? Now, I would say that uh, for that the composition within a warehouse is quite telling and then um, of sort of the labor organization. By that, I mean it provides both obstacles, but also is ground for solidarity. So if a lot of people are together on the basis of they're on a visa, they know that they have that relationship of dependence to their employer, they might come together and then talk to each other. But at the same time, for example, if let's take a warehouse uh, in Germany in, near Hamburg. I recently had an interview with a worker there and he said to me, they have over uh, 90 languages that are spoken at their warehouse. So the first question arises, how do you organize people with 90 languages in a warehouse? That's number one. But at the same time, what happened is you had these material obstacles, but because inflation is going up, so with economic inequalities being intertwined here, these workers actually decided to go on strike. So although a lot of people would have said this is impossible in such a warehouse, it was very organic. You had the North African workers um, you know, mobilizing people he could speak with or she could speak with. You had the East African workers communicating with one another. So it's a very, let's say, you know, bottom-up form of organization. In Germany, more specifically, because they are location-based and here in Germany, they are not subcontracted. Again, this is different regard, uh, depending on where you are in Europe. In Germany, they're not subcontracted. Um, so they have the right, in any case, constitutionally protected that they can unionize. But not everyone unionizes. Number one, they could not be interested. Number two, it could be because of their material reality. Some people are seasonal workers. So right now really is the peak season for, for Amazon, right? This time between Black Friday and Christmas. So they tend to double even the workforce of a single warehouse. So technically you would say this is the best time to go on strike. And in Germany, you will see time and time again every year they go on strike now, sometimes on different days, but they cannot actually, it's not, at the end, the customer still gets their package. And that's because they rely on this decentralized 
network of warehouses. So when we want to understand why do workers organize or why is it not always successful, we have to understand A, what are the material conditions? What contracts do they have? Um, in Germany, workers who do unionize say they unionize after they received a permanent contract. Once they have the security, then they feel safe to unionize. And then, of course, let's not forget Amazon being a union buster. We've seen this in the U.S., where Amazon will go in with tactics um, to tell people to vote no, which is something essentially they cannot do in the same way here in Germany. But it doesn't mean that, German, that Amazon in Germany doesn't find different ways to counter mobilization of workers. For example, Germany here is very close to Poland. So if workers in Germany go on strike, it's very easy to either shift the orders to a different warehouse in Germany or shift the orders, for example, in Poland, right? A country where the workers receive one third of the wage, for, in, for instance, of a German worker, etc. So it's a very complex terrain. And despite this complexity, we do see that workers are going on strike. The, let's say the dimensions, the effect that this has in the long run or even in the short run very much relates to how Amazon is able to instrumentalize the terrain, how also, uh, you know, the, the form and degree of unionization across warehouses. If you just have one warehouse going on strike and then another warehouse can deliver, then your strike per se didn't, let's say, affect Amazon that it will decide, it will sit down at a table with the union. Because whether it's US or here in Germany, Amazon does not want to sit down at a table with the union. In Germany, they've been fighting, you know, this is the country where they have the oldest uh, labor struggle with Amazon is Germany. It was the first country with a strike, uh, but you know, almost 10 years later, and they still are not able to get the collective bargaining agreement that they want. And that's because Amazon can just, you know, it's comfortable. It can dodge this and say, we don't need this. The machine is running fine. Workers are still coming in. We're still hiring workers. Um, these large online retailers, they uh, work a lot with migrant workers. They um, specifically, they recruit migrant workers, especially um, there around Berlin um, from the um, from the Polish border region. And um, but also from from uh, from many other from other countries um, in some areas. Um, some of these large retailers have also started initiatives, for example, to specifically recruit refugees uh, for these jobs. Um, so, um, so this also is a, a form of labor control because um, obviously um, if you have a very diverse migrant workforce, um, in, in the first place it creates barriers for collective organizing. Um, people are not able to talk to each other and also um, the, the German um, large unions for a long time were not um, so engaged in organizing seminars in other languages. However, what we have also seen is that, um, especially for Amazon, um, Verdi has invested a lot in developing resources um, to organize these migrant workers um, over the past few years. And what we have seen is that, um, especially in um, Amazon, um, the level of organization is growing. Um, there have been um, foundations of works councils in several warehouses and also we have seen a wave of strikes over the past years um, yeah, which are also related um, or brought about by the efforts of Verdi to organize in these warehouses um, but also by a lot of grassroots worker activism 
Um, there's a grassroots um, network of Amazon workers who have also been very active in in passing on knowledge about organizing, especially with migrant workers in different warehouses and supporting each other, um, even at the European level. Um, so um, similarly, in the inner metropolitan areas, in these quick commerce uh, warehouses of um, app-based delivery services, um, we um, also see um, a high share of migrant workers, especially in Berlin. And um, and, and similarly to um, what, what we saw at Amazon in the beginning, these migrant workers um, in the beginning, yeah, or, or it, it makes uh, the high share of migrant workers um, does make organizing a bit more difficult, um, in, especially in terms of support from the, from the large established trade unions again. As opposed to their engagement in Amazon, we have seen less engagement um, with these workers in the app-based delivery sector, with um, um, yeah, where when the warehouses, but also in the um, among the couriers. Um, this might be also because it's not the same scale; it's less workers. Um, but um, so what we have seen there is different forms of resistance, and here. Um, the uh, yeah i think the leading role has been uh, played by um, like grassroots worker collectives who are then in the end um, um, also formed by migrant workers um, but um, their profile is also a bit different from the migrant workers who labor in amazon and these large online retailers um, what we see in, in the city, especially in Berlin, most many of these migrant workers, they are students or um, they are actually highly qualified. Um, they have concluded their studies. They were doctors, lawyers. Um, and um, yeah, I, I just remember these two examples, but they were doctors or lawyers in their home countries. Some of them have been politically active also in their home countries. So. Um, what we have seen here is more of a grassroots type of organizing um, that has also um, then given rise to uh, various protests, wildcat strikes. Um, and um, yeah, I think other episodes will talk more about this, but we have also seen the foundation of works councils in more and more uh, warehouses or um, yeah, in these kind of companies, app-based delivery companies. In addition to these aspects of the labor process that stifle collectivization, there is one additional factor, that the business model of quick commerce was an uncertain one. Unlike Uber and Airbnb that were asset-light platform companies in the sense that Uber did not own fleets of taxis and Airbnb did not own residential properties, companies like Gorillas had to own or rent expensive real estate for their warehouses in the inner metropolitan areas. To turn a profit in spite of these expenses would require gorillas to convince enough users about the inconvenience of visiting the supermarket to buy groceries, or at least enough of them who could then pay a substantial premium. As Duigu reminded her audience on the day of her appeal hearing, this was far from certain. How are we supposed to negotiate not getting paid? How to negotiate illegal shift system? How to negotiate getting fired on the last day of your probation? These workplaces are dancing so smoothly with crime and non-punishment, walking on the very lines of it, 
and even stepping into it, but still getting away with it. Whereas us, striking is punishable by losing our jobs. And we are blamed to be anti-unions in some arguments. Radical left, leftist bubble. These were the adjectives and some nouns that were given to us. It's not that we are against the trade unions, but one thing has to be understood perfectly. The transients in these workplaces, the temporary contracts, the frequent turnover, the dependencies such as residence, visa, etc., do not make it possible for long-term unionizing. Our conditions are precarious, but so are these workplaces themselves. They run on investors' money and their life is dependent on if their PR can create a need for them in society or not. And in the if not scenario, poof, they're gone. That was Duigu Kaya addressing a group of supporters outside the Landesarbeits Gericht on April 25th, 2023. In the first episode of this podcast, we heard from several members of the Gorillas Workers Collective. Those interviews helped me put together for you a picture of the forms of worker activism that happened at the company in 2021, leading to the establishment of a Betriebsrat in November. Another member of the Gorillas Workers Collective with a close view of these developments was Diego Danamilla Batres. I started working at Gorillas the last week of uh, February 2021, either the last week or the, the third week of the month of 2021. I can't really remember now. It's, I started working there on, on a weekend and I think that same weekend I saw some colleagues that would, you know, I would later become acquainted with or to via the, the Workers Collective. And uh, so that happened the first weekend and the following one, one of them told me, hey, do you want to join a meeting? Uh, we are discussing some work related issues. And I said, yeah, of course. Tremendous, um, amazing, and in the week, the, sorry, the the meeting was um, was programmed for the following weekend. So yeah, two weeks after I started working, I, I went to my first meeting. I think that was like the third or fourth meeting that they did. That what was you know at that time being constituted as the Gorillas Workers Collective. It took place at uh, an FAU at the FAU office in Gesundbrunnen and we were myself included what five people so it, it was it was rather underwhelming <laughs> and uh, and the second meeting was an online meeting in which we were four people and that was even more so underwhelming that was like well what am I even doing here it's a Sunday I could be you know doing any other thing um, but then between that my second meeting and and, and the following one that had been programmed for the next weekend, a colleague uh, got fired. And I think other people have talked about this already. That kind of kick-started the whole, the whole Betriebsrat process. On April 1st, 2021, three workers from the Gorillas warehouse in the Kreuzberg district posted a letter across several internal communication channels of the company, inviting the employees of Gorillas to a general assembly to elect an electoral council or Wahlvorstand. This was the first step in constituting a Betriebsrat. On June 3rd, a contentious General Assembly elected a nine-member electoral council. On June 10th, 
the company fired a worker named Santiago and workers organized stoppages and strikes at several warehouses. I can't really remember right now if it was us who reached out to a union or the union who reached out to us, but the first point of contact that I remember was who at the time worked for NGG. I don't know if she's still doing it. If she... NGG stands for Gewerkschaft Narung Genus Gastetum. Founded in 1949, it is one of the eight affiliate unions in the German Trade Union Confederation, the Deutsche Gewerkschaft Bund or DGB. It represents workers in the hospitality, bakery, beverage, confectionery, butchery, tobacco, sugar and meat industries. Today, the NGG has just over 185,000 members. But anyways, she was like our first uh, like liaison with NGG and she came to some of our plenums uh, or plena back in March and April, I believe. I think also in May of 2021. And I also visited the NGG offices with three other of, of my colleagues from the, from the GWC. I think this was also towards the end of March of 2021 or the beginning of April. And it was, it was, I think for the most part, like a fairly good meeting for what I remember. I believe there was a, it, it was in, in some other people and the other people who were there, whose names I simply you know, do not remember. They were a little patronizing that I do remember. Um, but they, they helped us out with like, okay, these are the steps that you need to take if you want to you know, form the, the Betriebsrat, these are the things that you have to do. Um, so yeah, I think that was like the first encounter that we had with one of the big um, uh, DGB unions uh, related to the question. There wasn't really no, no talk on like strikes at the time at all. It was, it was way more like what kind of technical advice and counseling can you give us regarding the Betriebsrat? And that, that is what they did. Um, I, I don't mean to say that it was completely useless, but it was a little redundant because at the time we were also, uh, so a, a good colleague uh, and friend um, whose name shall not be named, um, <laughs> was also assisting us uh, with, with all these um, technicalities and with all the knowledge regarding how to set up the Betriebsrat. So these things we'd already kind of um, become acquainted with them by then, by the time of the meeting with NGG. I mean. So these things happen with, or we, you know, we, we kept a good relation with, I would say, during those months. Um, and she also, uh, like, helped us out a lot during the, the General Assembly. She was around. <clears throat> I believe she was, I don't remember if she was either, like, uh, writing the protocol of the assembly, which I think it was at either that or also guiding us with like, okay, these are the, like, you already said this, now you have to say this other thing. Like making sure that it was um, by the book. Um, so, so yeah, she was of great assistance um, even until then, until the assembly, which was the, uh, the first week of June. The, I think it was what, like the third or the second. And and then yes, one week later was the the whole the the Santiago incident uh, and uh, the closing of Charlie and then of Prince Lauerberg and then of Kreuzberg one day after the other. And at the time, 
this is the thing that I can't really remember why. Um, but at the time, some colleagues started saying that instead of NGG, we should start um, focusing on Verdi for whichever reason. This is the thing that's a little unclear for me. I think Verdi had been mentioned some time before, and I think even some colleagues had reached out to Verdi, um, but they were, you know, unimpressed by by us. Uh, a work, you know, a group of uh, relatively un unknown workers. Verdi stands for Vereinte Dienstleitungsgewerkschaft, which translates to the United Service Union. With over 1.8 million members, it is the second largest union affiliated to the DGB, which once again is the National Level Confederation. The name Ferdi is partly a reference to its formation in 2001 through the merger of five service sector unions. But then after the strikes, and of course there was this like gigantic like social media explosion um, on Twitter, followed a little bit on Instagram and. A lot of journalists started talking about like, oh yes, the, the wildcat strikes, this and that. I think it was only after that that the Berdi like caught an eye on on what we were doing and became interested. And and I think at the time, um, apart from what our colleagues had been saying of like, oh, we should get in touch with them, they also got in touch with us. And uh, when was it? Uh, um, there was a meeting. There was one plenum that they attended. But I think this was uh, towards the end of June or the beginning of July. Um, if I may do a parenthesis, I now remember also that we had had a meeting in their um, in their offices uh, like the third week or the or the fourth week of May. But this was also. Um, this was related to the Betriebsrat. It was also like part of, of preparing for the Betriebsrat and and was un, completely unrelated to, to to the strikes or anything regarding the strikes. Um, parentheses finished. <laughs> Our first meeting then was with, with them, apart, apart from this one that we had over at their offices, they came to one of our plenums uh, on first week of July, I believe it was. And it was a, um, a union representative by the name of and a colleague of his whose name I do not remember. And she was around for that session and I think one more and then kind of, I, I didn't see her again. Uh, became kind of like the, the liaison. Um, and another colleague of his, uh, he also became like the liaison, I would say, a month, a month and a half later. So I was actually going through the group chat and, and some of the notes that I'd taken yesterday. And uh, <laughs> so we used to we used to do this thing of like uh, doing polls on Telegram to either decide on something on like minor points 
um, because the, the big points were decided in, in the plena that we had, or to get like an impression of, okay, is this proposal or suggestion popular or unpopular or this or that. And so a couple of days before the meeting with Verdi, somebody had, had ran a poll um, and the vote on it was that we didn't want them in the, in the plena. We were just not interested in it. And despite that, they came to the, <laughs> they came to the meeting. I, I don't know what happened there. I was not the person in touch with uh, Daniel Nikolovic, but they showed up. And, and so there was a little bit of confusion because people were not expecting them and yet they were there. So we were all like, oh, all right, sure, join, whatever. Um, and then some other colleagues uh, adopted a rather, I would call it like slightly aggressive, um, slightly aggressive, slightly arrogant position or attitude where they were like, okay, what can you do for us? This is why you're here. Uh, this is what you're here for. You're the ones who need to tell us what are the things that you can do for us. So we're listening. Um, and at that time, you know, this had been like three weeks after the strikes. The, the main topic uh, or the, the main discussion point was the, were the strikes, at least for us and also for you know, the media and the journalists and whatnot. And Verdi was not interested in that at all, at all. They were, you know, they went to the meeting to talk about the Wahlvorstein, the Electoral Council, the Betriebsrat, these are the steps that you need to take, blah, blah, blah. Um, and we were just not, not in that, um, how to call it, in the same wavelength. Um, so, so there was a clash there uh, and like, we were insisting on like the strikes, how can you help us out with that? What can be done, this and that. And I think outright from like, from the very beginning, they said something like, you know, we're not going to discuss the issue of the strikes. We cannot legalize the strikes. We cannot even say anything, um, concerning the strikes because we risk it being misinterpreted by the company. And then we're the ones who are going to be like legally liable for um, or legally responsible for everything that happens concerning the strike and the expenses that, that, that they could have carried, etc. And th this, I, I don't really remember then like the next step, but the point is that we basically kicked them out of the, of the plenum, which now, you know, in hindsight, I'm not a fan of Verdi, um, but I don't think it was the, the best thing to do. It was rude. Um, so, so yes, something that I'm not terribly proud. I mean, I didn't kick them out personally, but as, as like, how to say this, as, uh, when it comes to us behaving as a group, that was not one of our best moments, I wouldn't say. <laughs> um, and anyways, that was our first interaction <laughs> with with, uh, with uh, Verdi as as like uh, the GWC, you know. And so this this meeting, the the one that happened in the first weeks of, uh, or I think the first week of July, it kind of set the tone for what continued or for what ensued. Ensued um, because what what happened afterwards. Um, I think our meeting with, with uh, Hubertus Heil was two or three weeks after that. The federal labor minister Hubertus Heil 
of the SPD Day Party was on the campaign trail in July 2021 to return to the Bundestag. Following the media coverage and social media storm over the labor struggles at Gorillas, he visited one of the warehouses to speak with management and employees about working conditions. Um so this was I would say kind of like the the pinnacle uh, or like the you know one of the pinnacles or like the the highlights of of media reporting on what was going on re- regarding the DWC and Hubi Heil and the wildcat strikes and all of these things and so uh was still interested in like meeting again um but um I think he was quite clear um in in the like in the communications that we kept with him that followed he was quite clear with the fact that he wanted to meet with the Valforstand you know that was like his uh where where he it was quite noticeable quite obvious that, that that was the thing with which he felt comfortable because it was and this is this is my uh, suspicion or hypothesis because it was an instituted body legally recognized um it wasn't you know these like i'm exaggerating here but like semi anarchic uh group of uh of angry and self-organized workers of of course this i i do think that that may have intimidated either him or his colleagues a little bit and and it was a bit of like more muddy terrain for him to to like navigate in and the valforstan was was not that it was like okay as 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 i was saying you're like you're legally recognized you're an institution you have a very specific and defined task that you need to accomplish you have even more so like specific and defined set of deadlines that you have to meet um so uh, that that was his um you know he felt like uh, fish in the water in that um during this time the members of the gorillas workers collective could be said to be on two parallel pursuits on the one hand they sought institutional power in the form of a betriebsrat for the city of berlin at the company they were already somewhere there with the election of a wahlvorstand and now they had to prepare for the betriebsrat elections in november on the other hand they sought some kind of organizational power they had to become more representative of the body of workers at the company and more capable of being able to voice their concerns and acting on their behalf the relative importance that they gave these pursuits could shape the identity of the gorillas workers collective diego had been elected to the wahlvorstand berdi started re- like reaching out to and relating way more with the wahlvorstand and with the gorillas workers collective of course there was like a- an overlap with these two things but we still had like separate meetings separate plena uh at the time then there were you know both things had weekly meetings and so there were two two meetings per week but the sorry the the GWC was <clears throat> was way more interested in um reaching out to people to have like more and more people uh coming to the plena and and uh, I mean I I don't I don't mean to like <clears throat> like flatten out the the discussions that took place but it was predominantly regarding the strikes seeing in what other warehouses we could like reach out to 
talking to people, getting them informed on, on their rights, this and that. And the Valforstand was way more, uh, the meetings were way more like, okay, we have clarity on what this step consists of, when do we have to do it, um, where are we going to get the, the, the voting uh, boots and the ballots from, and how do we register a voters list, what are the requisites that, that the list has to have, what is the information that the company has provided us with, what, what information are we still missing, this and that. So it was way more formal than than the than the GWC. There were there were like big personalities in the <laughs> in, in the GWC and and big personalities that had like big clashes. And I I would say so I mean first of all the, the Valforstan had less people or you know than the than the GWC meetings. And the GWC ones were apart from having more people um there were, I would say, more aggressive or assertive, um, you know, assertive being the chari charitable um, <laughs> uh, interpretation or word, um, more aggressive or assertive people there. And, and so that, that did kind of set out the tone of, of the meeting, of it being like way more like, uh, um, there was also, you know, a sense of urgency of like, uh, yeah, we we have to like keep on doing the strikes, and and of course I was all for it, but um, but uh, how to say this? Um, I was all for all for it, but I was also trying to like keep a little bit of balance of like, are we all checking in on each other? Are we feeling okay? Is this something we can do? Should we rest? Should we consult with everyone instead of like, we got to push forward. And there were some colleagues that had this very much like we have to push forward line. Um, and I think if if we would have been more or if we would have been better organized or if we would have all, you know, like given our lives into this, like all of our time, then the whole pushing forward would have been possible for sure. I think we would have had the energy and the time and the organization but the the reality of it is that we that that was not the case um we all had other stuff to do or we felt tired every once in a while of course or um or we had a personal conflict that that needed to be solved and not a whole lot of people were, were paying attention to that um so yes that was i would say a little bit the tone of like the emotional tone of what the the GWC plena were around these times like June and July August of 2021 and the Valforstan was 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 a bit more chill um <clears throat> partly because some of these more um assertive characters were not there because there were less people and and so being like there being less people we were able to kind of sort out and talk through um, the issues in, a, in, a, in an easier way, um, or at least it felt a little easier. And I think that also the fact that, that we had like a pretty specific and set goal was also like good for our mental health, I think, in, instead of just being like lingering and floating in the in the in the political limbo of like what do we have to do now and 
how are we going to do it? Are we strong enough? Um, all of these things I felt were, or I suspect were felt at the, at the GWC Plena. Um, so yes, I think th this all captures a little bit of the, of the very complex uh, emotional mosaic <laughs> that, that was the, the GWC at the time. Perhaps it is worth noting at this time that since it was founded with over 2.8 million members in 2001, Ferdi has lost nearly a million members. During this period, Germany's overall trade union density, that is, the proportion of the country's workforce that are members of trade unions, has also fallen from 23.7% to 16.3%. The trade union movement now plays a smaller role in German life. And its decline has coincided with a period of growth in employment that was unaffected even by the Great Recession. This growth came mainly in the form of jobs in the service sector, where Ferdi is the DGB-affiliated union. They did one more thing with, with, the, with the GWC, which was they went to this Always Be Striking uh, bike tour that we did. When was this? I can't remember if it was the last week of July or the first week of August, um, but it took place around these weeks. And they, they went to the, to the demo. They, um, they rode their bikes with us. I think they, they explicitly said they would stay in the back of the demo so as to you know, not call a whole lot of attention upon themselves. Um, why was that the case? They never really explained, but anyways. <laughs> um, so I think that was like the last bit of involvement of Verdi with the, with the GWC. And then everything else, everything that followed was with the Valforstan. And if I'm not mistaken, the next thing that came was, um, you know, as, as a Valforstan, there were a, a bunch of things that we had been asking the company for and that we had been telling the company that they had to do and, and um, like assist us with, namely providing information of, uh, of employees so that we could have like solid lists of who was working at the company at the time um, which is just a necessary piece of, of data of information that, that you need in order to set up the to prepare for the elections that they were also you know still opening warehouses at the time that we were not um, aware of um, so just like very basic information sharing that they had to do with us that they had to do with the Valforstein that they were compelled to do by law that they weren't doing and we had been telling them over and over again like these are the things that you need to do blah 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 do them anyways this all led up to a meeting that we had with management with the company's management uh, at the end of august i think it had been scheduled for some time before but there were some complications and we you know ended up doing it with them and i cannot remember if this happened before or after but but uh, the Verdi representatives also met up with management without, without us or without anyone, like any worker from the company. And that was kind of weird. That was a little um, unsettling. Uh, it, it felt like they kind of went above us and they were like, like, hey, we set up this meeting with management. We're going to do it. Uh, catch you on the flip side kind of thing 
and um, as I said, I can't really remember if it was in August or in, you know, in September, but it happened. It felt weird. It was like, why are you doing this? Um, that wasn't really solved at any point. We, you know, eventually we did have the meeting with, with them and with the company's management, which went uh, quite good. Um, a couple of my Valforstan colleagues did amazing that day. Um, you know, because at, at, at least from my experience, it is a little difficult to like be like aggressive and assertive and serious when talking with uh, with companies management because it is a little intimidating because, well, it's it's basically their job to be intimidating and to present and to have all the knowledge so as to be intimidating to the um, the company's workers. And and my colleagues did uh, quite well that day. It was it was it was very nice. Verdi didn't do much. <laughs> I think they were there more as like, um, uh, how to say this, to like to flex the muscle um, and to show the company like, hey, we have, you know, the support of this two million plus um, members union. Uh, but but apart from that, from just like being around and and providing or, or you know showing to the company that that we were in some sort of relation with them they didn't do much um after this meeting there were you know there were talks of doing like a warehouse tour with um with verdi representatives and in order to do this verdi wanted to draft a flyer together and and that also became like an issue <laughs> it unnecessarily became an issue because how complicated can you know drafting a flyer be uh, one of the easiest things in the world but uh, but of course um, Verdi made something very difficult out of it so they drafted a flyer in which they they basically um, left out the GWC and like had no mention of the of the collective whatsoever and they sent out the draft and we told them like hey you i think you're missing out on perhaps the most important factor here which is you know a group of self-organized workers who basically set up this whole process i don't mean to say like exclusively by themselves because we received a lot of help from a lot of people but we were the ones who you know at the end of the day like did the things that were necessary and like pushed through and whatnot and so we told them like you're missing out on perhaps the, the most important thing about this whole thing and and they're I think they they basically argued like like uh, we're not going to include this why are you so picky on what thing needs to be put in the flyer and what thing not and blah 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 and to me it was the other way around and I think also to my colleagues it was like why can't you just fucking <laughs> write this thing down uh, it's not how to say it. I mean, of course, there was a, an element of like ego there and whatnot, but it was just recognizing like these were the things that happened, and and it's not just like oh, a Valforstan like popped out of the you know out of the blue and and barely came in to save the day, which was kind of the the narrative that they were pushing. Uh, but that had just not been the case. So, anyways, this this very easy thing also became a like a gigantic discussion <laughs> over like 
hey, just include this. And they were like, we're not going to include it. Eventually, finally, they did. Um, they also started behaving like in like a, in an ultra bossy way of like, like sending something, you know, on a, on a Wednesday and being like, it needs to be done today. Um, the draft needs to be like prepared tomorrow morning. And we're like, yo, bro, like this fucking thing is unpresentable. Um, so it's going to have to wait. And they were like, you're all fucking wasting. I mean, they didn't use cuss words, of course, but I think the sentiment was like, you're all fucking wasting our time over here and blah, blah, blah. So the, the relationship, you know, it soured up very fast. Um, and I believe it, it, it did because they, speaking for myself here, not, you know, on behalf of the Valforsan that once was, um, I think they wanted to like piggyback on on what was happening and and wanted in on the on the excitement of of all uh, oh, these you know these workers are doing something, um, but they only wanted in on the on the on the safe part of it, of course, on the the institutional aspects of it and the ones that could be uh, legally controlled, because you know as soon as any mention of the of the strikes uh, took place or as soon as we were like hey what about this uh, what about our colleagues who got fired, you know, back in June, we were like, no, 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 we're not going to talk about this thing. This is um, out of the question. We're only focusing on uh, forming the Betriebsrat, on creating the Wahlvorstand. Well, the Wahlvorstand had been created by them, but not creating the Betriebsrat, um, making sure that the elections take place properly. And and that was it. And we needed other stuff at the time, you know. Uh, of course, we were doing the the, the betriebsrat, but we that that is how to say that that, that wasn't one hundred percent of of our tasks and of our interest uh, in organizing at the workplace. Um, it covered these other aspects of just trying to build a somewhat like strong and cohesive. Um, body of workers that you know if something wrong happened where where they were working they could be like okay we're um how, how does the expression go in english like we're pulling the switch down or we're we're um closing this shit and to say in a better way just a group of workers who had some degree of power and of autonomy over at the workplace and this is something that verdi was not interested in and you know that became very clear from the start from the get-go you're listening to diego danami labatres on the delivery charge podcast his account of the discussions that the members of the gorillas workers collective had with ngg to start with and then with ferdi during 2021 illustrated some of the difficulties of organizing the workers of gorillas through one of these dgb affiliates Speaking outside the Landesarbeitsgericht on April 25th of 2023, Duigu Kaya would remind her audience of these very difficulties. Today, long-term unionizing, speaking for food delivery sector, has only been possible at Liferando in some cities, because Liferando as a company is the most solid when it comes to existing. But today we can talk about gorillas anymore, as it is bought by another similar company. We have no choice but wildcat strike, against the spontaneity at, uh, of the exploitation. It doesn't wait for trade union bureaucracy. It keeps growing and expanding. And one word for DGB trade unions, social partnership positions, they, positions them as a bridge 
whereas they must be, without a shadow of doubt, the workers' representatives. It shifts their focus on the more stable workplaces. It is not the transience of the workers, it is the instability of the companies, or the stability of the companies what attracts them. If they are stable, they are worth their focus, not the other way around. Social partnership is another way of bourgeois ideology, which criminalizes our struggle and us to tame the working class, because they are well aware it is only our label, labor which they are deadly dependent on. In a scenario where it is withheld without control, like in a wildcat and or political strikes, it is not only a financial, but also an existential and ideological catastrophe for them. I repeat again, without our right to strikes, without trade unions, it is nothing but modern and legalized by the law itself sort of slavery. That's why, and for many other reasons, we have to fight for a comprehensive right to strike. Thank you. In the third episode of this podcast, we spoke with Ronnie, who, like Duigu, would be fired from gorillas after the wild strikes of October 2021. So, yeah, all these things, issues were building up. So I was at the point like, okay, like, I don't think I can do this job anymore, like, what the hell is this? Like, this needs to change, right? We need to change. But um, uh, also, I, I was not organized. Uh, I had a few friends who were in the... Uh, I knew some people uh, from Gorilla's Workers Collective. But, um, like, I didn't think about it. Like, But uh, there was a time when uh, uh, me and uh, another... Uh, uh, I, actually, my friends, Do uh, you and uh, Bola, uh, Fernando... Bolanius. Uh, so yeah, they were uh, kind of like organizing a strike. So uh, it was during, uh, just before October, I guess. Yeah. So uh, they were not, or I wouldn't say organizing a strike. They were organizing the workers. They were talking to workers. Uh, they talked to me as well. I'm like, hey, this is the conditions. People are unpaid. Like at that, uh, till that time, I, I, I never faced a payment issue from gorillas. Okay. Like, uh, but uh, it went really unseen uh, you know, to to my eyes as well. Uh, I didn't uh, really see the people who were uh, like, uh, I, or I didn't meet the people who uh, were not being paid. But uh, I always heard this like, okay, we are not getting paid. Our tips are being stolen. We are not getting uh, so. I didn't really believe it. I would say like I didn't expect this to happen in uh, Germany. Fernanda and I um, were close since the beginning and we got Ronnie on board. Uh, he was our um, comrade, friend, co-worker and also the, um, like, what is the nicest word, like the bridge to the Indian community and 
since we got Ronnie on board, uh, things started to change for us uh, when we were planning the strike. And also it created this like three uh, three person situation right now because we were, so to speak, the starters of the situation, like when it comes to organizing it. And then it gave us a little bit of a responsibility, like a symbolic responsibility. Fernando took care of one community, I took care of one community and Ronnie took care of another. So we kind of became the responsible people um, of the whole process. But it is a little harder uh, when there's already some grouping. Only English speaking people would group together. And we decided, okay, let's like talk to everybody. And the person who got fired, by the way, was from the Indian community. So it infuriated them. And them being infuriated gave us some sort of a courage because uh, they they were the majority. I belong to the English-speaking group, although I'm not coming from an English-speaking country, but Turkish people did not have a click there. <laughs> and... And then, yeah, we, Fernanda and I, who was, uh, who is a Mexican uh, co-worker, who was, uh, I mean, he's right now in Mexico. He and I were a member of Gorilla's Workers Collective and we were already talking about strikes and we were thinking, okay, what can we do? And we started talking to workers one by one and then we came up with this idea, okay, let's, uh, let's have like three representatives for these three inorganic groups. Uh, let's find someone to talk to in the Indian community. And that's what we did. And Fernando took care of the Spanish-speaking community. I took care of the rest of the group. We were just talking one by one to workers to understand if they would be up for showing a reaction. And 98% of the workers were in. Only a couple of them did not. And interestingly, that couple of people like are still working at Gorillaz. <laughs> the rest is not. And then we started uh, getting everyone on board one by one, building WhatsApp groups and then deciding to go on a strike because there was no other uh, way to say no to any of these practices. And the way we um, the reason why we striked was not to get better payment only. But again, most of us would say we are standing up for our dignity. We are standing up against exploitation. So how are you going to cover it? within the conventional ways. This is the political nature of it. And political strikes, wildcat strikes, spontaneous strikes, whatever you may call them, strikes without trade union representation, strikes that are not for collective agreements are forbidden in Germany. So what are we gonna do with all this unlawful, unrightful, politically incorrect, humanly incorrect ways of practices? Seriously, like that's the question that I'm asking everyone. Like, what is it expected from precarious workers who are mostly migrant? And that is a great context. I mean, we are not in our home, so getting badly treated is not does not make us feel the same way as we would feel in our homes. So, how, what are we supposed to do? What reaction is expected from us if we cannot do it the conventional way? Because I just explained it's not that easy, it's not possible, and you have to get a spontaneous reaction. And even if you did the conventional way, again, it just limits you to collective agreements. So what is it? What is it that would give them a reaction and that would make us uh, legally fight for our dignity and against exploitation? And our answer was just one, and we just went for it.
Collective bargaining at the industry or sectoral level between trade unions and employers' organizations is the most important mechanism for setting pay and conditions in Germany. In 2018, 46% of employees in Germany were covered by industry-level collective agreements, with another 8% covered by agreements signed at the company level. These agreements regulate a wide range of issues. Apart from pay, agreements also deal with issues such as shift work payments or pay structures, working time, the treatment of part-timers, and training. Negotiations normally take place between the unions and the employers' federations. The agreements are legally binding on trade union members, who in practice are normally all the employees, and the members of the employers' organizations who sign them. In order to negotiate and conclude an agreement, a union must be tarfehish, that is, it must have the capacity to negotiate. What sounds like a bit of circular reasoning actually is a set of formal conditions such as having a constitution which allows them to negotiate and the ability to put the other side under pressure as indicated by their membership and organizational strength. Duigu, Ronnie and Fernando were convinced that the sum of their grievances could not be contained within the boundaries of a collective bargaining agreement. Neither could they conceive of any mechanism by which any union of the company could become tarifahish. After they were fired from Gorillas during the first week of October 2021, they looked for other ways to continue their struggle. And with that consciousness, the fight did not stop for us because these sort of fights, they define how your life is. And when one branch of the fight is cut off, it is always an opportunity for another branch to somehow uh, bloom out of it. And when we got terminated, it also gave us this idea, let's fight this on, on, a, on a legal level. If they love it so much to do everything legally, if we have done something illegal, oh my God, like this company, you were on illegal strikes as if we were some bad criminals. And what about not getting paid? Like, what about giving people illegal shifts? Because there has to be, by the way, 11 hours of rest time between shifts. And this optimization-based new shift shifting system would definitely violate it. And we would be given shifts that had only nine hours in between. So what about your illegal practices? So they were all forgotten and they came up with this great idea. They have done something illegal. And then we were like, okay, if you are so much interested in legality of things let's do it your way let's go to the court and let's try to legalize this process and the way to do it was to of course sue the company and sue them with this argumentation you cannot fire anyone because they were on strike even if you consider it legal or illegal it is a human right that is given to us by the constitution and it is being blocked by a precedent that goes way back to early 50s. So there is only one judge that is standing between us and the right to strike. A judge's right, a judge's law, as uh, in German they would call it Richterrecht. So it basically breaks it down, brings it down to one person. And is it acceptable? Is it acceptable that we cannot practice our right to strike that is given to us by German constitution, that is given to us by European social charter, just because one person who is standing in the way, just because one person who made a call 
in early 50s to stop workers from going on political and wildcat strikes. So is it acceptable? And is it worth fighting? And then we saw the opportunity. We said, okay, it is worth fighting. And I'm pre- we were pretty sure that we were going to get lots of support, which we are getting. Maybe not lots of support in the case, like in a sense, like mass masses or like massive support, but the support that would make us uh, go for it. That And for starters, it was finding a great lawyer who would be in it. And we already knew the name Benedict Topman, who dedicated all his lives, uh, all his life uh, for the strike situation in Germany. Not only the strike law, but the whole striking world is uh, his main interest. And we knew his name. So we reached out to him and invited him for a talk. And on that day, we made it clear that we are going to fight this on the legal de- on the legal level. And when we were talking about like, okay, let's because there are two ways of doing this. You can sue your company and you can get reinstated. You can get paid for the time that you were illegally fired. Or you don't accept it and you keep on fighting. And this was one of the questions that we were asked in the beginning. So would you like to do the first option? Would you like to get reinstated and like get the money that you have lost in this uh, period of time? And the three of us said no. We don't want the money. We don't want to go back to this job necessarily. What we want is to legalize this sort of striking. So when it comes to the next exploitation, when it comes to the next moment where workers are somehow left with no choice, because if they do this, if they stand up against their rights by withholding their jobs, that does not that happens in a manner, in a way, which does not fall in a legal um like uh, in a legal poll where where they can uh, where they can do it like without getting themselves in trouble so we were thinking of a more sustainable way uh to help that happen and when we were so this was something personal uh when we were discussing it like do we really want to get paid for this time that we have lost and we we were all on board we said no we are not doing it to get more money we are doing it to get this tool legalized because we saw it as a tool and we we saw how necessary it was and we saw how misused it was by the bosses against us when it comes to firing people and and benedict asked us um, at intervals Whenever there was a new paper, whenever there was something new to start, whenever uh, there was a way to come up with a new strategy or an opportunity for a new strategy, he would always repeat this question. You can always go back to the previous option. Would you like to go for it? And the three of us always said no. There was always this mention of changing the strategy. And we are quite adamant that no, this is this is what we want because we saw it firsthand. And as political people, we also have political um our identities are somehow political we are not apolitical people and we think it is um of ut- utmost importance that we get this legalized it's not going to be our contribution to the migrant and the precarious but it is going to be our contribution to the whole working class in germany because these workplaces are not going to stay as they are they are going to expand their character will expand their way of exploitation will expand to hospitals again that's what happened. That's why I keep on going back to the hospital example. A hospital cannot be a precarious workplace, but it is right now. Schools, 
factories, they are going to get precarious day by day because of the neoliberal politics. And this is the only this is going to be the only way to to stand up for your rights in the future. And this is also the, the future way of organizing, because when you look at the numbers of people organizing under trade unions, it is it's been in a declining uh, tendency for decades now. And there is loss of faith in trade unions. There is loss of members. So what are we going to do with these facts as well? So where are these people going? The ones who are not or the ones who were once organized under trade unions and the ones who are not and the ones who are not showing any interest in organizing trade unions. So all in all, uh, these sort of conversations were always uh, happening among us. And each time we were asked what we want to do, how we want to proceed, we were quite um, dedicated to the cause because we, we thought also politically this is the right way to go. And we needed this to be legalized to give to weaponize the working class. And again, I'm not talking about only the precarious and the migrant. Yes, this is the initial focus group because we were the migrant and the precarious. But we also think it's going to be the future of the uh, of the way of organizing. And we will continue our fight. Even if we lose it on the legal level, we, we are going to find different ways. Right now we have a campagna. Uh, we have a campaign that is called Kampagne für ein umfassendes Streikrecht, a campaign for uh, a comprehensive right to strike. And it's getting bigger. We are finding more and more uh, support every day. We have a Twitter page where we are uh, updating our situation and our actions. And I'm pretty sure it's going to get uh, wider and we are going to make more discourse out of this so the society knows the German law is quite restrictive on the right to strike. You're listening to Duigu Kaya on the Delivery Charge podcast. My name is Aju John. A brief flashback may be useful at this point. We go back to October, not of 2021 when Duigu and her colleagues struck work at Gorillas, but of 1956 when more than 34,000 employees in the metalworking industry struck work for over 100 days for a collective agreement that would put workers on an equal footing with salaried employees when it came to sickness pay. The industrial union Ege Metall was able to reach a collective bargaining agreement that later even became the basis for a statutory regulation. But this came at a cost for the union. The conciliation agreement that the union had entered into with the employers in preparation for collective bargaining obliged it to not go on strike until five days after the failure of negotiations. Even though the union argued that there was no prospect of arriving at an agreement, Germany's top labor court, the Bundesarbeitsgericht, interpreted this condition quite strictly and imposed costs on Ege Metall. The president of the Bundesarbeitsgericht was a man named Hans Karl Nipperdai. Because again, there is this name Hans Karl Nipperdai. He gave an expert opinion back in 53 when there were Uh, strikes of newspaper workers. It was a political strike and it was the first political strike after Second World War. And they needed to find a control mechanism and they needed to find a way to stop workers from going on uncontrollable strikes like this. And that's when trade unions and states started working hand in hand. That's why we don't believe state trade unions are so innocent and so workers friendly because history shows us otherwise. They were given this full uh, job, full responsibility for the strikes. Of course, it's the workers who define it, but 
if if it is institutionalized it loses its character and this the the current um the the, the previous situation oh, sorry the the situation back then in 50s they decided this should be taken under control and they came up with this uh precedent okay what you did was illegal we are banning the political strikes in germany and whose expert opinion was involved in the situation was Hans Karnipardey and he was an ex-Nazi judge who was actively working throughout the NS times. He was contributing to the writing of the labor code for NS times. He was the one who introduced Führerprinzip, like the leader's principle, leader in this case meaning Adolf Hitler, in the workplaces. So he was the right hand of Hitler in, in, in some sense. So he did not only uh, got away with what he had done throughout those years, but also he kept on working and he kept on defining the <clears throat> the destiny of the working class because he was a judge of the uh, of the labor court. He then became a president in the Bundesarbeitsgericht actually, and his picture is still hanging in the walls, in the corridors of the of the of the courthouse, and this person kept on defining our today and this person's legacy is what is standing between us and a full right to strike and we and if it is just based on a president if it is based on an expert opinion why can't we eliminate it right now so they it is at the cost of having nazi residue in their law not to let the people not to let the workers go on a strike without trade union representation. So if they keep on the law, they will keep on the fact that they still have not had the courage to look back into their past and to confront those horrible, horrendous years. As you can tell, Hans Karl Nippada is a controversial figure because of his entanglement with the Nazi regime and his exalted position in West German labor law even after the Second World War. Through her campaign waged in the labor courts, Duigo wanted people to notice the shadow that he continues to cast over the right of German workers to strike. Uh, yeah, so it's like um, it's like you are, we are the water in the hose, and they were like trying to hold the hose, and now the water is a little more furious and raging. So that's what happened. I mean, they made us rage more because the first one, oh my God, Thomas Kuhn. I'm never gonna forget that judge because um, he was the first judge I've seen my entire life. I wasn't in courts. That wasn't my plan again about Germany coming here and like going to labor courts. But this judge, with all respect, I wanted to say, but I'm not even sure what respect would mean in this case. It felt like I was in an American TV show. You know, these like courtrooms where American judges are somehow contributing uh, moral lessons to the people in the court and I felt like like where are we right now are we in Germany or we are just in some sort of a simulation of an American TV show it felt so off-putting because the person was a raging judge and showing already which side he's on and almost insulting my lawyer and being really harsh with us because I wanted to drink water and he was so harsh with me not to drink water and I was just like not getting it. Was I doing something uh, uncourtly? Like what, what, what's happening right now? 
And he, we, we just saw someone who was furious the entire time, who was insulting and who was actually threatening because this already gives you this feeling you are not in a safe space. You are not on equal terms. This person has already judged you and put you away and you are there for nothing. So that's th that was the feeling in the beginning and I wanted to read a statement that I wrote um, before the court. He didn't let me read my uh, statement. He said... Uh, a courtroom is not a is not a room for politics, and I find it kind of an oxymoron thing. What is what is a court like? Where does it get its um, understanding? Where does it get its strength and weaknesses? From politics, I mean, politics are making courts and courtrooms. Anyway, um, so we found it really hostile, and him not letting me read my statement led me reading to read my statement outside. And that let my statement get into more hands somehow. It got published on the website of my uh, lawyer. And there uh, he tells me more lawyers and more people from, um, from, law, uh, from law field had read the statement. So from my personal, personal perspective and experience, it, it helped the whole uh, knowledge, the whole information of the situation get to a larger audience because if it was if it was happening in a calmer softer um not very resistible manner like when there was not much to resist resist against then it wouldn't maybe uh get out of the courtroom it would have stayed there but the way they were acting actually helped us get more attention and the second uh round the judge was way more optimistic to me. I mean, with the German, I understood. She gave us the room to somehow serve our argumentation. She gave us the room to hear both sides. She was very kind to us when she was addressing to us. So that gave me some sort of a feeling. Okay, now we are going to be taken more seriously and we are going to be evaluated more uh, more just, in a more just manner, manner. But then the verdict came out and it was shocking to us because... It was obviously a political verdict. She didn't only uh, said, okay, the terminations were uh, legal, but she also tried to ban an appeal, a potential appeal. And now we are going to have to fight two things, like to keep on fighting for what we were fighting for. And we are now trying to lift the ban on appeal because this is not, this is not acceptable. This also has a confession in it. What are you trying to stop if you think an appeal, because what you are trying to ban is something that bears your fear as well. So what they fear is that there's a chance for us to get what we want, to legalize wildcat strikes because our argumentation is strong. And I think she saw that and she got maybe intimidated by this and she thought it might be possible for them to legalize this. So I have to, I have to ban them. I have to prevent them from going further. And I believe there's a big confession in this and it is not coming from us because that's what we believe already. But I think they started believing that we can get this right to wildcat strike, political strike legalized. And that's why they wanted to put a ban on the appeal. And I also don't believe it's some sort of a personal decision. I think we are on a very delicate um, place. We are in a very delicate place. And I believe like there's some sort of a chamber, chamber of judges uh, in the labor court. 
maybe they decided it collectively and she was just like um, relaying the message. I don't know how the legal system works here, but I don't think it was an independent, innocent decision. I think it was a very political and very uh, fearful decision. They were afraid that we could be one step closer to what we want. After their appeals were denied on April 25th of 2023, Duigu, Ronnie and Fernando had to consider the options before them in their campaign through the courts and outside them for an expanded right to strike. So far, this campaign has moved in parallel with the worker-led campaigns to establish works councils at Gorillas, Flink and Leaferando. We know about these grassroots efforts from other episodes of this podcast. The workers in these platform delivery companies are part of the 46% of employees in Germany who are not covered by collective bargaining agreements. At the end of the last episode, I outlined some of the themes that this podcast was covering in these episodes on Germany. One challenge was to position such grassroots workers' collectives in a system of worker representation that recognizes only trade unions and works councils. Thanks to our close attention on this episode, both to Duigu's campaign for a strike right that is unconnected with mainstream unions, and to Diego's recollections about the discussions between the Gorillas Workers Collective and some mainstream unions, we now know a bit more about the constraints within which these workers' collectives have worked. They are legal and institutional on the one hand, and social on the other. We also know about the uneasy relationship between these workers' collectives and the mainstream trade unions. In the last episode, we also came across the successful attempt by Getir to install a management-friendly Betriebsrat. As of December 2022, Getir owns Gorillas. The latter was valued at $1.2 billion, not much more than what it was valued at the start of 2021. That acquisition also drew the curtains on the story of the Betriebsrat at Gorillas, a Betriebsrat that Diego had been a member of. I asked Diego whether, knowing what he knows today about the future of that Betriebsrat and the many obstacles it faced in discharging its duties, whether he would adopt a different approach to working with a mainstream trade union like Ferdi. Um, I, I would have made a bit of a more... Um assertive effort to be kinder to the people from from Verdi I think we we were all like unnecessarily like harsh on them and and, and very arrogant at the time I must admit um, I think we all had you know we felt like oh yes we are so powerful <laughs> just because of the again of like the social media explosion that the that the GWC had and of thinking like yes all eyes are on us and blah 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 and, um, I think we all had like a very unnecessary ego boost and part of the ego boost expressed itself in, in, you know, being aggressive or like mistreating or being arrogant with some people. So that I would change. 
but by no means would I <laughs> would I like join Verdi or like reconsider my approach to the union as a whole or like as a as an institution. If anything, I would I would have like a bit more clarity and experience on how they operate and be like, okay, I know what they're after. I know what they want from a group of self-organized workers. Um, their interest, their main interest is uh, membership and co-opting, you know, grassroots efforts. So by no means am I going to like waste my time again with them. I wouldn't at all. I would just be like flat out from the start, like, thank you. We know where you're coming from. We've kind of experienced it in the past. Uh, some of your efforts are, you know, great, but you as a, as the entire institution suck. Um, and that is it, you know, and I mean, it's if you look at it from like a very like formal and almost like mechanic perspective, of course, it's it's not in the best interest of this gigantic union to support autonomous workers. Um, it's going to sound a little redundant, but like worker self-organization, because if the workers become organized by themselves, then it means that they don't really need a union. So why would the union help support this effort? that basically sabotages its own structure or its own, you know, raison d'être or its own, like, uh, yeah, reason to exist. So, so yes, of course, looking at it from that perspective, well, it doesn't make any sense that the union, any one of these big unions would, would support this kind of effort. Um, so I, I think, I mean, I may sound very pessimistic right now, but, uh, but I think there's no, no, like, possible conciliation between these two these two things of course you know as as people we can work with one another um and like yes of course i've worked with uh, numerous verdi members and and also Verdi representatives and whatnot and so again as people very possible very doable amazing people um they're the best but uh but uh, sorry <laughs> but uh as uh, as an institution uh yeah no would not would not go through that again it's just it, it turned out to be very um uh, turned out to be disappointing and just like like constantly like banging our heads against the wall of like what is going on here what are we doing yeah it I and mean, you know it went just hand in hand i'm remembering a couple more things it just went hand in hand with with this like patronizing and slightly condescending attitude of like you don't know what you're doing we do know what what we're doing and we're going to th this is a quote that one of them said at some point like we want to organize you it's like well we're already a little bit self-organized maybe acknowledge that first and we can work from there on but this whole thing of like we want to organize you there was this other point where one of them said something like verdi is not a service provider on demand and we're like, well, no, nobody is treating you like that. But if you can't really prove your worth and, and and show us what it is that you can do, then again, you're this gigantic, useless bureaucratic machinery <laughs> and and nothing else. Um, so there was there was a lot of this of these um, observations, um, quotes, comments that set a very weird and sour tone in our relationship. And that will be the last word on this episode of the Delivery Charge podcast. Thanks to Duigu, Diego, Sarah and Tatiana 
for speaking to me and for sharing their memories, reflections and scholarship. Thanks to the ICAS for their support. And finally, thank you all for listening.